Welcome to Curiosity Didn't Kill the Cat, a social fabric production with me, Andreas Blindori and Dara Power. And this week our guest is Imer Noon. Imer is a, an Irish conductor and composer, and she's conducted the Philadelphia Orchestra, the Royal Philharmonic, the Sydney Symphony, amongst others. She is an award-winning composer and her, her music has been featured on video games and movies. Imer was the first woman to conduct at the Oscars in February 2020. If you do get a chance, please leave us a review and a ratings, it would be much appreciated. For more information and more episodes, please check out socialfabric.ie. The title tune is Happy and Shiny by Deranda Bados. Thanks for taking the time to have a chat with us. Let me get, I'll give you a kind of a, myself and Andrea, uh, we both are messers in the sense that like, I draw pictures, I play music, um, uh, I kind of fiddle around the place with all sorts of creative stuff. And so does he. And we had a chat on the internet one day and a friend of mine, um, she's Hungarian. She's a big fan of Leonardo da Vinci. We were talking about curiosity and, uh, when Leonardo da Vinci, when Walter Isaacson wrote his biography, he said like uh, his defining characteristic was curiosity. And then Bernie was saying, well, he was also in a cult looking for the Holy Grail. And then we came to the conclusion that like, uh, you know, what does the Holy Grail do? It takes the dead and it brings them back to life. And we were kind of going, isn't that what curiosity does? So uh it takes people who have no sense of life or fun and it brings them back to life so we 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 decided to put this kind of short series of five six i don't know however it turns out to be podcasts of curiosity and creativity um and uh and andrea has the social fabric podcast that he, he runs kind of so we we've never met in person we just kind of you know, have conversation. So we had a conversation with Dave Zaboski, who's an animator from Disney. Yeah. Uh, we had uh, Jen, who's a psychologist at looking in vulnerability. With Sheila Walsh, who's an artist, and it's all about finding a little bit of everyday joy in being creative and curious. So that's the yeah. Andrea. Do you want to say hello? Yeah, absolutely. Imer, first of all, thanks a million for being here. I'm really looking forward to hear your Pleasure. story. Uh, Dara started to tell me a little bit about how you guys uh, met a few years ago, and uh, when you were sitting in in the in the band, and he he, he was playing the clarinet. Or uh, yeah, it was just a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. just a few. And, I wasn't uh, <laughs> eleven years old. Dara Power I was wow. eleven yeah. years old. Well, let's start from there, Imer. Let's start from there for a second. You know, eleven years old, you were sitting beside Dara. And playing, he was playing the clarinet, you were playing the flute, is that correct? That's right. And talk about a messer. So do you remember us uh, playing our first show? It was my first show. I was 14. It was Calamity Jane. You were sitting next to me playing clarinet and we got bored after the first show. So we decided to see if we could chew gum and play at the same time. <laughs> remember that? No, um, but that sounds like something we do, yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and we were playing, and the thing is, we were playing woodwind instruments. So, yeah. you know, it wasn't like, you know, people talk about, you know, walking and chewing gum or whatever. We were playing an entire show. And also, we were really, we were really young to be playing. Uh, and this was my first job where I actually got money for playing music. And uh, it, it was mad. I'll never forget. Do you remember the trombone player? Remember in rehearsals? There was a scene where they hadn't gotten the costumes yet. And there was a scene with Calamity Jane. And, and she's this really wonderful character from, from our local town, uh, Bernie. And she's Bernie is, is doing something. We're not really paying attention to rehearsals. We're just paying attention to our music. But in the first show where the costumes, uh, the trombone player, who was a young lad in the band as well, we were watching. And all of a sudden, Calam starts to strip off. Now there's like petticoats and all this kind of stuff. It was very PG. But your man fought, fell off the chair with shock. <laughs> do you remember that? I do, yeah. I, I remember. I remember all these things. But Dara's mom, Mary, Mary used to. I remember 
so many occasions where Mary picked me up from school, gave me a sandwich, gave me a piano lesson, and then we'd head off and play a show together somewhere. And this was really important to me. And it's something I've spoken about in interviews that I've never forgotten. Mary used to say to me, if the set falls down, vamp. You know, so she'd be playing piano and I, I was playing the flute. If the set falls down, vamp. And because we were playing shows all over, like the, the Midlands and, and East Galway and stuff, the set did fall down a couple of times. I remember playing Garbly College, some show or other, and the set fell down. And Mar Mary and I just made up a whole interlude that went on and on and on. But that gets into your spirit, that attitude. And I have carried that through every live performance since is if the set falls down and whatever, whatever shape that comes in, vamp, keep going, keep it together, you know, <laughs> make something up, make something up, make it happen. Um, because that's that's what we do for the audience. But um, on the on the topic of getting back to curiosity, um, I have to say I've had the great privilege of living in Los Angeles and working with some of the finest musicians in the world. And many of them, people you that wouldn't be household names, but that are musicians, musicians who have the respect of all of us and uh, and the fear of many. But um, you, you're making me think of I lost one of my best friends last year. He, he was he just turned 80. And he was probably the most recorded pianist alive. Mary would have loved him. I wish she'd met him. Mike Lang is his name. Mike played um, on Big, the Tom Hanks movie, that that uh, big heart and soul all the way. Yeah, dun, dee, da, da, da. That, that whole improvisation is Mike. Um, smoked salmon and scrambled eggs, the Frasier theme. Conductors can't sing, by the way. Um, the, the, um, that's the... the the Simpsons, all of those things, um, Unforgettable with Natalie Cole, that's him. He's on everything. When Elton John would want another pianist was Mike. When Ray Charles needed another pianist was Mike. And he was the most, he was the most curious person about music. He's, he told me before he died that he was just getting good, you know, and he was constantly trying to improve in his mind. But sitting, listening to him improvise was a music lesson for me and was a music lesson for all of us professional musicians. And it was that he was endlessly curious about the art form and, and endlessly curious about different styles of music. But that seems to be, um, that's, that's a commonality between all of the best people that I've worked with. They're constantly curious about what they're doing, intense and intensity about that. It's, it's like, it, it's almost like there's so much to know. It's not possible to know everything. And that's actually a driving force. And there's a relief to that. It's I'll never know everything about my job. It's not possible. Um, I like that. Uh, it keeps us endlessly on our toes. Look, Mozart existed. Brahms existed. You know, that for us is kind of, oh, okay, there's, there's no end to this. Um, but you're right you're, to, to um, investigate curiosity because that's definitely uh, a common attribute with all of the finest people that I have worked with, um, including on the Academy Awards. I'd say that for a lot of the players and the music director in particular, um, uh, his name is Ricky Minor. He's uh, I call him my soul brother. And he is somebody who is constantly learning as we all are constantly trying to, you know, not fill in the gaps, but we all, we're all completely hung up on the things that we don't know and, and trying to improve on those areas all the time. And he's, he's someone who's, who's like that, but he's excellent at what he does. And he's a massive spirit. He's incredibly generous uh, as a as a human being and in, in the way he thinks about things and the way he thinks about people. But the other thing I've noticed is those people, you know, they're not just the indigo children that, that wake up every day going, isn't life beautiful? They're people who have come through the fires and gone through the, um, the difficult stuff to come back to that place. Uh, I was I was explaining this to a colleague of mine who was telling me, you know, in Dublin, you don't know about the politics, the music politics that goes on and you you show up and everything's beautiful and light. I was like, I know all about it, my friend. And we've there. there this is the thing of Los Angeles, where it's the most competitive musical city in the world. We have more musicians per head of population than any city. 
And people go through the fires and have the corners knocked off them. And you choose this attitude. You choose to be positive. You choose happiness and you work on it because the alternative is you, you just have to, you have to give up. And that when you are a musician, as Mary knows well and will tell you, it's not something that's made. It's not something you choose. It chooses you. It's it's almost like something that you can't get away from. <laughs> and if that that being the case, uh, you have to figure out a way to live a healthy, positive life. And there's so much politics, there's so much nepotism, there's all of that stuff that's in every other career as well. But uh, we can't create at all. If I wake up in the morning, there's music that needs to be written that it needs to exist by the end of the day that wasn't there when you wake up in the morning. But we have to be, we have to guard our creative selves from interference and negative interference. Or I can get derailed and that music will never exist or won't get done. I won't meet the deadline, whatever. So we have, you know, a lot of creatives are fiercely protective about their, their fragile spirit um, because we know that that's the place from which we we get the means to make a living. And that's the most vulnerable place uh, where we can be prevented from from creating. So anyway, that's very convoluted. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it, it, it's wonderful, Imer. And uh, you just gave us this amazing whistle through tour of uh, from Sydney beside Dara to, you know, Malibu, <laughs> Malibu and uh, Los Angeles. and, uh, and Exactly and the same. Exactly, exactly the same, the same. and, the, and yeah. the awards and we're going to get to all of that in a second but you just say something that really interests me the, the you know knowing the difficulties of the politics or whatever it is that you know sometimes for us that don't they're not in that creative uh, world we always think of isn't it wonderful to write a piece of music and wander off and you know and there's everything is wonderful but it just makes me think that what Mary uh, Dara's mom said to you all those years ago, you know, when everything else falls around around you, just keep going, right? Uh, yeah, that, vamp. That, <laughs> vamp. Vamp is the word. Yeah. And, yeah. But tell me a little bit, of just if, if I may, Dara knows your story. I don't. I'd like to know a little bit more. So from that moment when the 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 everything fell around you and you guys kept kept playing, you know, Mary on the piano, you on the flute, from there to uh, to now, tell me a little bit about the 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 journey because it's it's a long way from East Galway to uh, directing the awards, the, the Academy Awards. Just tell me a little bit, just some of the the best bits of that the curiosity that carried you through. Well, I have to say, Mary was a huge part of that because uh, you know, like like a lot of stories that you hear about um, learning classical music in particular, I, you know, I'd I'd been through a situation with one of those negative teachers that has a very negative way of of teaching music, and uh, I loved playing in the band, the band that Dara and I were in. I absolutely loved it. And then I met Mary and I thought, what music can be so much fun all the time? I I didn't what I didn't think that was allowed somehow. You have to do your piano grades and you have to, you know, it has to be stressful and it has to be um, you have to compete and you have to achieve. And, you, and it was Mary really that showed me and the band indeed that there's so much camaraderie amongst musicians and that music can be really, really fun. And then, you know, I was, I'm, I have quite an obs obsessive personality, which is which means that although I work on video games, I have to be really careful <laughs> about not playing World of Warcraft, for instance, or I might never reemerge. Um, but I was absolutely obsessed with the orchestra. I, I, I loved it at sight. And I didn't, being from East Galway, I never got to hear an orchestra until I was actually playing in one. Um, which is is something that I'm I'm working on with some great people in Galway to to uh, remedy around around the area. But um, I was absolutely obsessed with how the sound of the orchestra made me feel and how it made people feel. And just seeing, and this was me just watching television, seeing that the passion 
and the way these players moved and breathed and the sound and, and how it made me viscerally when I understood nothing about what they were doing. But the feeling of the, the goosebumps, that, that, that excitement, what it did to my heart and my stomach when there was a lift in the, in the orchestra, when the timpani roll comes in, and there's a big key change on the downbeat or something. Why? How? What is this? So I wanted to be as, as deeply embedded in what made that happen as possible. And that for me meant conducting and composition. I wanted to be as deeply, deeply embedded. Um, and uh, so I decided very early on, I was about seven or eight years of age, that I wanted to be a conductor and a composer, you know, very young, um, uh, which sounds mad, you know. But I joke that there weren't enough people in my village to tell me that it was mad. Because, you know, we only have around here, we have farmers, nurses, teachers, shopkeepers, um, and pretty much that's it. So being anything else, they were all in the same category in my head, you know, going, you know, studying science, being a conductor, composer, uh, all of those things were in the same category because nobody in the village did them anyway. So I didn't see it as being like this crazy thing. Um, but the other thing is we had a composer that lived in the village across from the school. Um, we had Paddy Fahey, who was one of the most renowned and beloved composers of traditional Irish tunes uh, alive during his lifetime. We lost him a couple of years ago at 102 years of age. But just knowing that just the if you can see it, you can be a thing. It never occurred to me that that was weird or unusual because his house is literally we could look out the classroom window and see it. You know, so that was there. Mary was there. Um, a small town where, you know, when they see a talented child, they are very quick to nurture that, you know, that's a, that, that's, that's a thing. Uh, it's a very Irish thing. It would say it's a universal thing, but, but, um, you know, <laughs> we're a little bit, the whole thing of you can be anything you want to be in Ireland. We're like, yeah, but you want to have the natural kind of sort of the natural aptitude or a child that's obsessed with sport or obsessed with something, the whole community will, will get behind that. Yeah. And it's, it's, that's really special. But um, I'll tell you a story where Mary's words really came to pass and the, the Academy Awards wasn't it because everything went to plan and everything was smooth and we tons of rehearsal and, and all of that. I was doing um, a project in Los Angeles with the LA Opera and we had this project called the Maria Callas Hologram Project where a company called Base Hologram had gotten together with the former head of opera at Juilliard and he's a director from the Met, Stephen Wadsworth, wonderful guy. And Stephen had written this script that was kind of a love letter to Callas and what she achieved and what she brought to music both through her voice and her technique. She was the first kind of method acting opera singer um, she brought cert certain operas that had fallen into, um, the, you know, they'd been left on the bookshelf for a long time, brought them back to life. Norma is, is one very, very famous one. Um, but uh, this, this, this project was really beautiful. It was kind of a, a piece of theatre where a conductor um, dreams of conducting for Callas, but is born too late. And you see her walk, you hear the, they folied, it, it was a, a million dollars worth of technology. And they weren't sure if it was possible to synchronize with live orchestra because Callas in her day was so, the word rubato, where the, everything stretches and pulls rhythmically. She was so hard to follow for the orchestras that, but when you have somebody standing next to you, you're breathing together, you're making eye contact, you're moving together. This was a hundred times more difficult, even though the performance was the same from her every time because we used her original vocal performances and they stripped away the orchestra. But it was incredibly technically difficult. I had a monitor, I had visual cues, I had aural cues. The aural cues were so complex, they had to be notated rhythmically in the, the score and in the parts. And <laughs> so the LA show was really important. All the producers showed up in tuxedos with headsets on and was all of that palaver you know and I just I just thought well where have you been for the rest of the tour anyway um the funders were there the head the guys that had put all the money in um the LA Times was presenting it the critics were there most of the audience was industry so very few members of the public were even even there 
Um, before I went out on stage, um, I noticed we were starting really late, like 15 minutes late, and I'm standing there in the wings, and one of the producers comes up to me and he goes, um, so Emer, uh, do you think, um, is the show doable uh, without the visual cues? And I'm like, I said to him, John, ask me the question you really want me to ask me. He said, the, the tech is down. Can you still do the show? And I was like, Mary Power. When, when the set falls down, vamp. And this is the point where most conductors would say, LA Times, LA Opera, I'm out. I'm out. I'm not going to risk my career on this, right? And it, I understand that. I, I'm, I'm not saying that that's a, a negative. I understand that. I just looked at it and I went, John, I guess we're going to find out. And uh, what happened was this. Um, I am there. Stephen had flown in from New York and it's a whole big deal. And I can't see what her behind me because she's two dimensional when when uh, when we see her, she's three dimensional to the audience. There's a, a scrim of silver thread, literally silver, a very, very expensive piece of equipment going across the, the stage. The audience can't see the scrim. They can just see Callis. You hear her footsteps walk out and people gasp. You know, it's very emotional. Um, so they did, they start the show with her. She's sort of, we start with an overture and she's not on stage. Then she walks out on stage. But Callis would take her time and make everyone wait. And she smooths down her dress and she gets into position. And it's a long time. And I can't, I don't know when she's going to start because I can't, my monitor is gone. So I normally have the footage of her in front of me with streamers telling me, okay, your, your clicks in your ear are going to start in, I get a two second streamer, the way we used to do score movies in the old days of Hollywood goes past my screen. I know I'm about to hear something, but I'm waiting there and you, you don't know when it's going to start. Somebody could hit a, a bow off a music stand that makes the click sound that sounds like what's supposed to be in your ear. Uh, there's all of this stuff going on. So she's smoothing down her dress. She's smoothing down. And I just, I look behind me and I'm, I'm going like, are we ready? Are we ready? To, are we ready to go? And the audience is all thinking the same thing because back in the day, this is what she do, but singers don't do that anymore. So I look at her and I'm like, are we ready? And the audience chuckles and laughs. And then they it made them comfortable, but being in the presence of a hologram of callous. And then we start and we're off. And that happened one more time in the show where, again, I had to look around to see what was going on. I'm not supposed to look at her when I'm when I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the dark until I'm really part of the, the show. And uh, and I had to do it again and again, the audience laughed. So it actually became part of the show going forward because it was helpful to the audience to to get them into to relax with what was happening with the technology, because it's quite it takes you off guard. It's, it's it's quite a lot. But Mary Power, before I went out on stage, he goes, I was like, let me tell me what you ask me the question you really want to ask me. And I was like, Mary Power, when the set falls down, vamp. Here I am in L.A. thinking of Mary and, and I in Garbly with the set falling down. But <laughs> but afterwards, the result was Stephen Wadsworth goes, oh, my God, how did you do that? I don't know how you did that. How did you do that? And it was, you know, the hero that kind of when all the shit hit the fan and they were all the producers, excuse my language on the thing. Um, the producers were all freaking out. A million dollars had gone into just the tech, not putting up the show, not all the things that go with putting up the show, just the tech, all of their bosses, all the money people, all of the potential investors, all of the people that wanted to book the show from around the United States were in the audience. It was a big deal for their business. And um and Mary saved the day, basically. <laughs> it, it's amazing, you know, because some of the memories came back. Because I've seen you do that so often over the years. <laughs> and it always made, like, I remember we played Noel Henry. Do you remember Noel Henry? Yeah. Brilliant piano player. We did a cabaret with the Balneslow Musical Society. And it was like, so what are the notes? And Noel would be like, oh, we're just going to busk around these three chords. And every now and then he'd go hit it to do a solo, and like 
I, I'd be kind of waiting for you because you had really good ear and you'd pick up on stuff and then I'd follow what you were doing. <laughs> and, then, and, and then he'd go, hit it. And you'd play this amazing solo and I'd be sitting there going, wow, like, how is she doing that? You know, and, and, and it was kind of Don't like, uh, oh, yeah. And, 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 and they're so, like, what I got out of the, I, I used to have this conversation with my mother that it's a social gift as much as a, a musical gift because you're creating magic with people. Yeah. And, and you, you, you've spoken about the kind of the being touched by the orchestra in your heart and in your stomach and that this creation of a feeling, everybody could do this every day in a coffee shop or whatever, but there's a kind of a, a, a magic to life performance. And you can see it when you conduct that it's kind of a, it's yes, this is what I'm born to do, you know, but, <laughs> but, but there's kind of like a, I mean, I remember meeting you in Dublin, walking down the street a couple of times and, you know, it's like there's a lot of slog that goes in to creating these opportunities to create mm. in the way that you want to bring things to life in the world. So it's like, I guess, at a philosophical level, you know, life kind of brings us opportunities to learn. You know, well, it, it the, brings us opportunities yeah. to, to, to bring things out. So, you know. Well, yeah. the, the other thing is... um the other thing about curiosity is it drives people to take action as well. It's, it, it, it gnaws at you. It's, it's, you know, I remember being a student um, in Trinity and I was in first or second year and it was, I'd been studying composition already from 17. I was the youngest at the NSMRO composition summer school for two years in a row. And they brought over amazing composers from, uh, we had Cal we had Aho from uh, Finland. We had Carla Rasmussen from Denmark. Really serious art music composers, and I, I was always, you know, obsessed with how music makes people feel and what would it feel like listening to a film score. I loved film scores for that 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 reason because they're designed to bring to bring forth feeling. Or in early and Renaissance art, we call it affect. It's, uh, it's affect specific techniques to bring forth feeling um, and uh, or to paint pictures, but sp specifically feeling. Um, so much so that the augmented fourth, so when you have an octave and you split the octave in half, you get the augmented fourth. The octave is a very pure sound. Now, Py Pythagoras did mathematical analyses of these. And when you when you split a string into you get the octave as well. But when you, you split the octave in half, you get the augmented fourth. And it's so unpleasant to us. It it solicits an almost physical reaction, uh, so much so that it was banned from composition for church music for hundreds of years. It was called Diablo Musicae, the devil of music, Diablo Musica. Um, and uh, we use it in film music all the time. Actually, they used it. In the, they used to use it in the passport office in Dublin. <laughs> I noticed that it's like you're sitting waiting for your passport and every time the dean goes you're like uh, and um and and Leonard Bernstein went oh it's banned for music how about let's write a love song using that oh I just said I'm singing it wrong it's like I'm a horrible singer just met a, a girl named Maria so Maria begins with the dia the devil of music Diablo Musica and that was I also he has uh, Officer Krupp Krupp key, which goes through all 12 major keys. So I know in my heart, both of those were him, him going intellectual challenge, you know, let's write a love song with the devil of music and let's put it at the very beginning um, of the chorus. And, uh, and then let's go through all the 12 keys for the laugh. Um, and uh, so, so curiosity drives people to take action because I was so curious, what is it like to be inside of this music? This music I'm watching on Braveheart uh, and I, as a kid, I loved James Horner. When I saw Willow for the first time, I went, hang on a second. I grew up in a, uh, an area where this famous traditional Irish music, music, that didn't hit me in the heart at all. I mean, only uh, it, later on did I get more into the trad music, but I was mad about the orchestra. When I saw Willow, I was like, hold on a second, you can mix the two? I didn't know that but you can have tin whistles play with the orchestra. And I was only a little kid. And I, that, 
that was that was it for me. People always say they heard they heard uh, Star Wars and they wanted to be film composers. It, for me, it was James Horner's Willow score because I heard him bring the trad and the trad instruments into the orchestra. But um, I'm so I'm so bad with tangents. I'm sorry, guys. Um, but the curiosity. So I went, how how would it feel to be inside this music? So I set up an orchestra with my classmate, and we we and th- and I've always thought certain film scores they come from classical composition. Let's find some of the classical. Uh, scores that are used in film, put them side by side and present this to the public. We set up an orchestra. We sold out the National Concert Hall in Dublin. Mary was there. She was at one of them. And uh, they um, uh, that was the start of of and that led to, you know, circuitously led to my my having a career. Not that someone saw me there and went, oh, my God, you 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 sold out the National Concert Hall. No, it caused actual political consternation that us who do we think we are, these, these ragamuffin kids doing this? Um, but later on, what happened was this. Uh, we performed the score to um, Batman, the Batman score. It, and the scores we were doing had never been done in Ireland before at the time. I'm dating myself, of course. Um, and Batman was, was Danny Elfman score, and it was orchestrated by his friend from the band Oingo Boingo, Steve Bartek. And Steve did a wonderful job. However... There was one piece in the suite. So a suite is where they sort of get different cues, different pieces from the score, and they kind of package them so that we can hear it as as one one piece. Um, And in the suite, we're kind of stopping and starting in rehearsal. And we're rehearsing, if you know Trinity College, the big arch at the front of it, front arch, the window directly above it is Regent House. That's where we would rehearse. And you could hear it all around Front Square. RTE came and did Colin Connolly lay on the grounds on the grass in the front square and did deep in the heart of Trinity College. And we have Batman, you know, uh, and you could hear it all re- reverberating around. But um, we were playing through it. And this is how I got to L.A. We're playing through it and we played this waltz. Now, all of us, uh, a lot of us were, you know, were, were in the Irish Youth Orchestra. All of us have played in different ensembles together and so on. But we would all have played Strauss waltzes for rich people in January. You know, we would all have done the Strauss balls for corporate events and, and so on as students. So we knew the style really, really well. And whoever had orchestrated this part and, and a film will have different orchestrators because it's such a huge volume of music in such a short period of time that needs to get done. And we played it down and it played down so perfectly, no stopping and starting. And the joke was so pithy that, the, you know, taking the make out of Strauss with Batman and, and the Joker waltzing to the death on the, the, the roofs of Gotham, Gotham City. It was so pithy. It was so well done that when we finished all these young music students, we all burst out laughing spontaneously. We all got the gag and it was so beautifully, beautifully done. So all through college at the same time, I was taking modular courses. UCLA Extension had an outpost in Dublin and they bring over the head of, you know, CBS or the head of music for CBS or the head of music for this and the other, mostly retired guys actually to teach us. And one person that wasn't retired, they brought over a famous orchestrator. And he was uh, the arranger for Tori Amos. And he was telling us the things he'd done. If you ever want to hear what great rock and roll orchestration sounds like, listen to um, Yes, Anastasia, Tori Amos. He did that one. But he was telling us, you know, he worked on Ali, he worked on The Insider. He's gone through Conan the Barbarian. He orchestrated when he was 24, Basil Polydor score. And then he goes, um, oh, and I worked on Batman a bit. And I was like, Really? I said, which part? And uh, he said, oh, this waltz thing where Batman and and, uh, and I said, hold on. Did the cello counter melody go like this? And I sang it for him in the class. He goes, how do you know that? And I told him the story of, well, we just performed it a few weeks ago. And this would have been, we would have been a couple of years down the line with the orchestra at this point. I, I actually ran it for five years. And uh, he said, I can't believe you know that. And I told him the story of us really getting the joke. I eventually heard the original tape of what he was handed um, uh, by Danny. And, and I could hear his, his impact on the piece very clearly. So on the strength of my work, by the end of the course, um, he hired me as his assistant. 
So that was purely curiosity, putting together how would this music feel like to inhabit? How would it feel? What would it be like if I put all the best young musicians in Ireland together in a semi-professional orchestra and put us on stage at the National Concert Hall? Um, my classmate Gillian Saunders was uh, set it up with me. She played in the orchestra as well. And then some of the some of the grown-ups, like um, a uh, very famous uh, Irish oboist, David Agnew, came and played Gabriel's oboe from the mission with us. Frank McNamara's wife, uh, Frank McNamara, brilliant pianist. Frank was there and, and Teresa Lowe, an Irish TV host, came and hosted it. And they were all the people that got it. Couldn't believe these two mad students were creating this whole world. And then we had Elmer Bernstein, the composer who wrote um, things like uh, the, the score for the field, the score for um, uh, Elmer's is the uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think is Elmer. He's just amazing. He became our honorary patron. I met him in Dublin in a in a restaurant. Um, Noel Pearson, the producer of the field, was an honorary patron, and John Borman, the director director of of Deliverance and the General, he was one of our honorary patrons. Would come to the concert because these are people that got it. They saw these mad kids with the same kind of spirit that, that, you know, I don't want to compare myself to John Borman, God, amazing man, but that sort of driven by curiosity, driven by the work, driven by wanting to do the work, not driven by money or, or vanity or career. We didn't give a fiddlers what musicians get paid to do that. We didn't know. We didn't care to know. We just wanted to do it. I remember putting, this is really going to date me, around the corner from Trinity is um, the post office. I remember going and getting bags and bags of coins and going into the post office to the coin box and calling Los Angeles on the to try and, and source the dots, the, the sheet music for um, uh, uh, Braveheart, James Horner, of course. And the guy, it was Franz Waxman, the composer's son, had a side business in renting out scores and parts that other composers would just give him and say, here you go, uh, John. And I remember it being really expensive for us students. And I remember him saying to me on the phone, you know, this, this score is not easy to perform. And I was like, you know, I knew the soundtrack inside out and backwards. And he goes, you got, you need this really unusual instrument and uh, it's, it's really hard to find and it's called the Uelian Pipes. And I was like, the what? You know, and he goes, the Uelian pipes. And I was like, do you mean the Ilan pipes? And he goes, no, the Uelian pipes. It begins with the U. And I was like, pretty sure that's the Ilan pipes. <laughs> no, it's definitely it's the Uelian pipes. Actually, the guy that played Ilan pipes on on the um, on Braveheart played our wedding in Malibu. <laughs> I wrote a piece for our, our wedding from for Malibu. Uh, um, uh, oh my gosh, why is his name slipping my? I'll think of his name in a minute. Um, but anyway, I said, the Illin Pipes, I said, I'm calling from Dublin. I could have 25 Illin Pipers on the stage in the morning. You know, I was so so that was fun. And I also remember uh, <laughs> so many of the guys that that were the extras in Braveheart were from the FCA, which is the um, uh, what, what the Army Reserve in Ireland. They'd be amateurs that are trained up. So they all, and there's a famous scene where they scare off the other side by lifting up the kilts and showing their bare bones to the other side. Loads of those guys are fans of James Horner. Loads of them are metalheads, um, heavy metal musicians. I remember when we were performing Braveheart, looking up into the choir balcony, which was, we had our choir on the stage. So we had sold the choir balcony tickets. And from one end of it to the other, all you could see was Pantera and Metallica and Iron Maiden t-shirts. <laughs> and they lost their minds when we performed Braveheart. It was brilliant <laughs> with the Uelian pipes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, uh, but again, all driven by what would it feel like? What would it be like? Can we make this happen? How does this music work? What does the score look like? What does the orchestrators, back then it was, what does the orchestrator's handwriting look like? You know, it was before we, we changed everything over to um, uh, um, music, music notation and music notation software became commonplace. Um, but all of that to us was, what does it sound like? What does it feel like? What does it look like? Um, but none of it was driven by anything other than that drive. And we worked, I remember working 16 hours a day whilst doing my finals 
getting shingles because my um, my immunities were so run down and having to postpone my actual exams by three months because of, you know, conducting a choir the, in Dublin, conducting two choirs in Dublin, teaching music and running a, a semi-professional orchestra, um, doing concerts at the National Concert Hall. Um, and it was uh, it was a tightrope walk because we didn't have any funding. So we had to sell out in order to pay everybody, you know, so it was <laughs> it was crazy. But that got me my assistant and that orchestrator taught me uh, a massive amount. Very, very intense character. The work was extremely hard, taught me the work ethic, taught me the, the level of intensity that's there. And I saw that across the board, people. People in our line of work, uh, in in film, in video games and TV, they're all very intensely into what they do. And it's clearly not the ones that do it really well. They're not driven by the paycheck because that wouldn't cover it. The, pay, the money would never be enough to, to have that level of intensity and that level of drive and uh, uh, and of conscientiousness about the quality of the work as well you know it's it's more important that your colleagues see the work as being super pro than what you're getting paid to do it to 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 that type of person it, it's it's more important that the the work looks sounds uh is of a really high standard than because even if you're you, you deal with different budgets all the time but the standard of the work has to be the same you know you're not going to get the big budgets if the last small budget you did was not of the of the standard as as we call it. Um, you don't get to do the big budgets. So um, I I leave that behind in work. It has to be about the process and it has to be about trying to be better and more and 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 curious and and investigative investigating when you hear something that you think is fantastic. In, in Mahler, in Brahms, in one of your colleagues, investigating why it works so well and how you can, um, as, as, as Stravinsky said, great artists don't uh, borrow, they steal, um, but it's, uh, it's about how you can learn, how you can become a better artist, how you can become a better professional, a better person, how you can be happier in your work, how, he, how you can investigate dealing with the anxiety of the work. Um, it's such a, a learning process on every level. How can be a better parent whilst doing the work? Um, and I'm constantly, constantly working on all of the, the aspects. So yeah, you can hear my husband typing away in the background. He's, he's producing, um, he's producing the music on the, the, um, the show that we just created. I'm going to close the door, actually. Hold on one second. That's okay. <laughs> we have a dope stage here. This is this is the, the composer's workstation room, but downstairs. Um, and Dara, and, and of course, both of you, Andrea, you're welcome to come and see it anytime. And Mary, I have to get Mary out here. But um, uh, we can dub films here as well. Um, so that's it. Yeah, that's, that's really... That's, um, that's an amazing story. I have, a, I have a couple of quick questions just to feed my own curiosity because you're here. I have to take the opportunity to add the play. I love music. Uh, when you mentioned by the, 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 the being touched by the, the orchestra, I had the pleasure as a kid in school. I, in Rome, I grew up in Rome. <clears throat> we were given tickets to go and see the dress rehearsals. So I took over this thing and I had 20 dress rehearsal tickets every week. So I went to see all the amazing operas, all the amazing um, uh, compositions. And they, the one that stuck with me was the bolero, simply because it's just, you can see every single instrument right. shape. And But every time I go to the, to to see uh, classical music live, my eyes are on the conductor all the time. I just can't take my eyes off the conductors. I can't get my head around how you guys can do all of that, you know, especially say the Bolero, I'm not sure if there's about 40 people on stage or whatever it is, it's quite a lot of, the orchestra is quite big. So that's one yeah. thing I, I want to know about, how do you, uh, I mean, I'm looking at the musicians and I'm looking at the conductor and, and all of that is just fascinating. How does it, how, how does that magic happen? 
you know, in your head, you have all the instruments, you know exactly. And I, I use this when I do my courses. I use the bolero as an example of in a team building exercise, team coaching exercise. You know, there's a guy with a triangle at some point. I think he has one one note in the whole thing. Maybe it isn't the triangle. I can't remember. But I know one guy, he only appears 14 minutes into the, the, the music and he goes, ding, and that's his bit. <laughs> <laughs> But well, he needs to the, come in at the right time, or she needs to come in at the yes, right time. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, you know, um, music, as 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 Goethe said, uh, architecture is frozen music. Um, and when you think of music and architecture together, music is very structured. So we have uh, we use that structure to hang to hang the music on there so that we can collaborate and we can uh, be an ensemble and we, we we can communicate. So it begins with that structure. So the certain gestures I give that they recognize um, as, as sort of a roadmap inside of that structure, but there's so much more to it. I actually recently went in, was brought in by the head of psychology for the high performance, um, the high performance, in, it's not institute, the, the high performance side of the Irish rugby team, uh, their, their uh, coaching was brought in to speak to the coaches about nonverbal communication and performance and how, because we can't talk to each other when we're, we're performing and what's going on, you know? So that structure is one thing in showing where this is the, this is the downbeat of the bar. This is the first beat. So everybody that's counting bars goes, look, I have a bar, it's got four beats in it. There's one. So I know if I don't count the rest of the beats, I know where one is all the time. But sometimes we don't show one because we're dealing with, that's so simplistic. And musicians are so good at, at, at counting without even thinking about it almost, that um, I'm dealing with the musical aspects. We don't want you just listening to a structure. It has to say something, yet we want you to feel something. So so it's so much more than that. And some of the nonverbal c- communication, we've our peripheral vision is just ridiculous. Also the conductor's vision, people never think about this, but we have to be able to pick out a pair of icon, of eyes in a crowd of, Bolero, you, you're talking 80, 90 musicians. So I have to be able to pick out a pair of eyes for that triangle player out of that sea of people. Now, in fairness, the poor triangle player, those percussionists have, they're multi, multi, multi instrumentalists. So he's not booked for the one triangle part. He's playing triangle, he's playing cymbals, he might be playing snare, he might be, snare is a big one in Bolero. We've, you know, he's playing lots and lots of things, but I'm cueing them, I'm giving them a warning. There's, There's a little bit of, no, you know, you might get eye contact of, yeah, I know it's coming up too. Because you can feel who's who's giving me some anxiety, who's giving me whatever. There's a huge energy management aspect of the job, and it's um, it's it's well, the way I describe it is in Chinese medicine they talk about uh, a person being like a candle. The the tie is the body of the candle, um, the chi is the flame. But what's really interesting to me as a performer is is what's called shen, and that's the light that's cast by the flame. That's you projecting your energy. And you can feel it when you walk into a room, but we do that on steroids. When I walk into an orchestra, I don't know. I'm straight away feeling out what is the culture in this orchestra? What's the vibe, literally? What's what's going on? Who needs me? Who doesn't? Who can I trust? Who's uh, having a bad day? And I have all these vibes coming at me. And my job is to get everybody going in one direction. And... Um, also, if something, if if I can feel the energy dip, if I can feel the energy go negative, is how to get us back, how to get us back quickly without it having any or little impact on, on what we're actually doing and what the audience feels and hears. And that's going on constantly. And we get to a point where I, I swear to God, I can almost hear the orchestra think at this point. And you're hearing, you, you hear something small happen and you can hear everybody go, oh, what was that? You know, and it might be something that's that's perceived, you know, the audience might be able to perceive it. But if I can even feel like I call it a disturbance in the force. Well, of course I do. I can even feel a disturbance in the force. I'm like straight over there. We're fine. But the musicians also, there's other things they will. Others in the orchestra will look to me to see how bad it is. You know, I just heard something. Is it is it bad? And they'll see me like I heard it, too. It's fine. (laughs) You know, even if it is bad. Because uh, the, taking the sting out of it as quickly as possible means we can recover faster. 
And recovery is everything. And recovering before, almost before something happens or at the very start of something happening. And it's that adaptability. And I think in a way, um, COVID was devastating for musicians' careers. Okay, and besides, let's leave aside the horrendous, the number of people that lost their lives and the horrendous uh, things that happened to people's health. For musicians, our careers were one thing, feeding our families, all of that. But we're so adaptable in general. We've been that way our whole lives. Again, if the set falls down, vamp, it's all there. We use it for everything. So um, one of the things that was horrendous for us was not being together. Because all of these, these things I'm talking about, we couldn't do through a screen. We couldn't, as much as you can get a vibe from, from someone through the straight screen, we, our our, our um our trade is in unseen vibrations. You know, we deal with sound. That's our, our stock and trade. And the other unseen vibrations are the ones, the shen, the, the, the vibes that we send each other. And that's such a huge impact on a performance. And the audience can feel it. So it's like a feedback loop. The, the orchestra throws a, a vibe at me or I throw it at them. It's coming back between us. Then it goes out to the audience. The audience feeds it. And that comes back to us from the audience. And then that elevates us. And that's the best possible place to be when you're in that energetic feedback loop. It's amazing. And that's when you get your standing ovations. Standing ovations are about standard of performance, but it's more than that. It's communication. The audience feels something. They, they, there's a communication on a level that nobody really understands. I think we will understand it in the not too distant future. But now I sound very sort of woo-woo, as I say in California, talking about um, nonverbal communication through vibration. But for, for musicians, it makes total sense. What was amazing about us being on lockdown is we realized how important that is and that we can now talk about it because we're like, yeah, that's a real thing. It's not my imagination. That's a real thing. Um, because we had to put together, I, I refused to do them because I did it. I did one. I did one of the first ones ever where we put it together an orchestra on YouTube. And that entire aspect of performance is just missing. It's not missing when we record together. It's there. And I'm always saying to orchestras and recording, there's no audience in, but I want to feel that energy jumping off the recording. I always say that to especially great recording musicians because they're like, yeah, you know, I can play this stuff in my sleep and get every note perfect, but I want it to be more. Um, so so that's, a, that's one of the major things. I mean, I can talk about the techniques of all day long, but but, uh, but this is more interesting to me. I no, think. and I absolutely love that. And uh, that live, uh, that energy is, is fantastic. And just my last question, um, because when you're talking about that, uh, I, I was on the, the dart on the train here a couple of times and, and, and made musicians. I, I was watching over the shoulder what they were doing. Composers, there were people scribbling this beautiful music notes. I, I, I can't read music, so... It was just fascinating. It was like watching somebody writing in Chinese, as far as I was concerned. But when you compose, when you're composing, do you compose in your head, first of all, before you compose on, on piano or anywhere else? Because how do you get that? Like, from a writing point of view, I have a thought, I put it into words. But I don't, I, I, I love to know a little bit more how that goes from your brain to, yeah. to the paper without, without well, touching the instrument. Well, I tell you, when you have to when you have to write a large volume of music, you want to get your ideas from everywhere and anywhere. So how they start can be a million different ways. For me, it's often if I'm out for a walk and I hear a theme and my first question is, is this new or am I hearing it because I heard it somewhere else? That's really problematic for us. Um, and generally, Craig and I talk about this all the time because we we have a different process. Generally, I'll hear something completely orchestrated um, when I hear it because I, I live inside the orchestra. So I'm I'm literally, and I'm I'm loath to to try something outside of that. I'll try. He'll go try try this, try that, and I'll try it, and then I'll end up taking it out because it wasn't what I originally heard. Um, then uh, the other thing, the other way of I'll sit down at the piano, I'll, I'll mess around with chords and I'll hear it as the orchestra straight away. If that's what I'm, what I, what I want, or, or I'll hear it as, no, this is more, this sounds like, this feels like a piano piece to me, you know, or this feels like whatever. And I can't be limited. Um, I can't be limited by, by what my fingers can do with the orchestra. So, so I'll go straight 
to my score pad, which is now uh, electronic. I'll go straight into notation with the themes and I won't be hampered by what my fingers can do around the keyboard. I'll go this brass. So to write idiomatically for the instruments of the orchestra, where basically you're, you're writing and idiomatic doesn't just mean the notes that belong on that instrument, but it's how does that instrument, how can, how can they sound their best? How can I, um, it's almost like an accent. Each one of them speaks in a different accent. How do I write for, for that accent, for that language? And every single instrument is different. And then the instrumental groups have their own idioms as well. So the brass as a section, the strings as a section, you know, and then you can mess with the idioms and say, you know what, I can write, write this will work on the strings all day long, but I want to, I want to use I want to use write this like a choral or we often do this with the brass. I want this to sound like a chorale or I want I'm going to write for the strings like they're a percussion section or I'm going to write for the strings like they're a rock band or you swap it around to keep it in interesting. But you do that sort of within being idiomatic. We want to push the boundaries always. But um, then there's uh, idiomatic for the orchestra itself. And the other thing is I'm getting a bit technical, but Instrumentation is one thing. And this is actually a team. This is interesting about team building. So you have all your geniuses uh, in the orchestra. And let's just take the instruments as themselves. The instruments can do one thing on their own. And, and that's great. And you want to know what they do best, what works best, what, what goes under the fingers, what lays down under the fingers well, what, what they'll know how to instantly phrase because it's such a part of the tradition and the repertoire. That's one thing. It's instrumentation. The flute can play from C to C, uh, a little bit more than that, um, or a little bit depending on, um, but generally that's what it is. We, these are the notes that we write within. That's one thing. Orchestration is how the how you stack the orchestra as together with the departments in between. So you have your your um, your brass, your woodwinds, your uh, your percussion, um, your uh, uh, your strings, maybe your choir, maybe your rock band, whatever you're writing for. And it's okay. Each one of those departments has their strengths. And each one of them will work. If I take two of them together, they'll work in one way together. If I put them with a different one, but then how do I stack this so that everybody's at, at their most advantageous? Everybody's is an, an, uh, an optimum. Everybody's working at optimum. That's orchestration. How do I, how do I make that everybody's at their optimum? Certain things will, when the oboe plays in a certain range, they'll cut through the whole orchestra Piccolo always cuts through the whole orchestra. <laughs> you know, um, I used to play that with Dara. That's why I'm, I'm making the point. Uh, in the high register, the piccolo is king. The trumpet up at the top, depending on where they are in their tessitura, we call it, um, as, as you'll know yeah, in Italian. Uh, this, this is important. Who's, who's where in their range? But how does the whole stack up? How do I stack this so that everybody's optimum I, and I get a particular color of sound. It's not random. I want the orchestra, the color of the orchestra to be this. I want it to be more mahogany, intense, reddish, brownish intensity. How do I make that sound? No, I want it to be a cold bluish green. How do I make it sound like that? Mm -hmm. And, and this is, this is where orchestration is. And, um, and it's not about the individual. You need to know what the strengths of all of the individuals are. And you need to know who they work with best. And you need to know with which departments work better together. And, and then how to, to change it up. I want to create something completely unexpected. Let's put this department with that department or this soloist with that department or just do something completely. Use the rules, turn them on their head, but knowingly do so to, to, to shake it up and, and, and get new ideas. So wonderful. it's very metaphorical, of course, for, for everything. No, but it's know? wonderful. And I think all of us that love music, it's, it's, it's great to hear um, how, how it can be produced from your head to the instruments. And I love the idea of the colors. But uh, I'm, I, I can ask you another 20,000 questions, but I'm conscious of the time. <laughs> and I want to give Dara the last word because he hasn't said much. He's still chewing from, from all those years ago. Yeah, it, what's what's lovely for me is right. You know, there's a kind of a there's what you know, and there's what you do, and that comes from who you are. 
you know, and this kind of a way of being that you embody is bringing you all these different places, but the, it's the creative force that's coming through you that you just, the art of, 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 of working with everything there to express something ineffable and, and, and move people with a feeling, you know, there's a kind of a, a magic to it, an art and a science is, you know, but it's like, uh, so the same, the same passion that's there, but like for me, it's incredible to see how you still, the, the same person is still there from all those <laughs> years ago with the same kind of passion, just this incredible artistry in 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 bringing all that out because it's not just stacking the orchestra it's moving them all along in a way that creates this um shen this 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 that brings people on a journey and it seems to me that it's more than just the music you know to create an orchestra in dublin to create a you know there's a whole kind of uh it's creating a life and one of the things that andrea has is a the one hour holiday which is that everybody needs a little bit during the day uh, of, of of that. You know, just take a one-hour holiday and create a life that you want to, to live, a way of being that you want to have. So I, I think it's, I mean, like, it's, it's, it's inspiring, an inspiring story and uh, lovely to hear and lovely that you're, you know, I mean, it's mind-boggling how much artistry you've, your curiosity has brought you. So I'm really... Great to catch up with you. And I only live in Loch Ray, so let's grab a coffee sometime. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 I, here, anytime I'm here, um, I'm heading off to um, uh, Scotland, actually, um, this weekend uh, for the, the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. But you know what? I think, I think if you need a title for this conversation, uh, it comes from Mary Power, When the Set Falls Down Vamp. Uh, because I use it all the time, all the time, because live performance doesn't matter where you are or who you're with. Live performance is live performance and life is live performance, right. you know, so, yeah. <laughs> so we're always there. vamping. You know. We're always vamping. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Absolutely. And uh, I, I'm so lucky to to have had Mary in my life at very during very formative time. Um, but uh, yeah, she's with me always. And I've told people that. I've told people about her. In fact, at that concert in LA, I told the, the whole lot, the whole team afterwards about Mary. <laughs> but, I'll uh, tell, her, tell her you said do, hello. Do, do, do. Anyway, guys, it's so great to talk to you. And, Thanks uh, a million, Emer. Uh, Thanks a million yeah. again. Really, really appreciate your time and the wonderful, wonderful insights and you gave us so thank you yeah absolute pleasure absolute pleasure Dara it's great to see you see you soon and I hope you enjoyed our conversation with the wonderful Emer Noon for more information and for more episodes please subscribe to socialfabric.ie
Shining like a sunny day.